Welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. Mike Bowdenistle here from Freight Waves. Today's show should be a fun one. We're going to be interviewing Tony Hatch, our independent railroad analyst who really knows a lot about the industry and just hosted his big uh, Rail Trends uh, conference. So we'll hear all about that. Um, but before I do that, I just want to make sure everyone has a chance to sign up for the Rail newsletter. If you are not signed up for it already, all you have to do is go to FreightWaves.com forward slash subscribe and scroll down to the bottom under Classics Newsletter. The second one from the bottom on the left column is the Rail newsletter. You'll be in, your, be in your inbox every Thursday, primarily articles written by Joanna Marsh. Um, would also encourage you to do, do one, you know, two slots above that, the Stockout, which is on CPG and retail. So that's one that I do and tend to throw in some things on there um, on the rail intermodal industry. So those are really the two relevant ones uh, for the, uh, the attended audience of uh, people speaking uh, rail. So I um, encourage you to do that. Um, and with that out of the way, I want to introduce uh, today's guest, who is Tony Hatch. He's an independent railroad analyst. Uh, you can read his latest article on progressive railroading. Um, just read it this morning. Uh, lots of great stuff in there. Um, Tony, uh, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, How absolutely. Are you? Um, glad to have you. And um, this is a great time of the year, I think, to, to have you on the show. I mean, you host your um, Rail Trends Conference every November. Uh, really great conference. I've been to a couple times um, when I was an analyst at Stiefel. You have the CEOs and, and, and uh, the railroad management teams in addition to you know, shippers, consultants, you know, the STB, um, union representation, sort of you name it. Um, what were the, the big trends of this year's conference and did anything surprise you from the conference that you heard? Um, well, uh, the biggest trend, I think, was an attempt to really focus on collaboration. It's really interesting because we're entering a period of more intense rail-to-rail competition than we've seen before, given the CPKC and what they're um, proposing and what they're doing already in the service down in Mexico that's directly competitive with a lot of other uh, railroads, particularly the Union Pacific uh, and their IMC partners. So on the one hand, there's this intense increased competition, but what that seems to have stimulated is, you know, a wave of alliances out there with the CPKC, for example, CSX at Meridian, Mississippi, but also with um, with other carriers creating the Falcon service with the CNUP and Ferramex, with J.B. Hunt and BNSF who presented, which was a, a real treat, of their new plans for significant intermodal growth with Quantum, but also via Eagle Pass into Mexico, which is pulling business out of the Laredo that used to be uh, given over to KCS. So you have in increased competition, but also uh, a wave of alliances and increased collaboration. I mean, there was some skepticism about whether the railroad ser services, which have all clearly improved from their bottoms, you know, whether they can really translate this into growth. Like they have been mm -hmm. intermodal shrinking since 18 or 19 and, you know, in carload really since 2008. And, uh, you know, a big part of that is coal, of course, secular trends away from them. But it's also been their inability to capture uh, a freight and to, to do that, they need to show consistency. So that was another theme. Uh, there were some surprises. There was a, a great um, STB speech really hammering on the Union Pacific for for the layoffs and other issues. Uh, the other railroads have all taken essentially an unofficial no furlough pledge in order to keep crews around for the inevitable economic rebound and so not be caught short as they were in 2021. Uh, UP announced small numbers of layoffs, which were not enough to move the needle for fourth quarter earnings, not that that should matter, uh, but were just big enough to catch the attention of the SDB. 
uh, new CEO from Union Pacific, Jim Venna, came to the conference just in time to get a tongue lashing from the regulator. It was interesting. And then Marty Oberman announced he would not be, in effect, seeking a second term. So there was some, you know, there was some drama and some news. In addition, um, CPKC basically said that they would be going along with whatever the Mexican government decided to do in terms of passenger business, which may not have been a surprise to everybody, but was a surprise to me that uh, AMLO in Mexico wants to add passenger service on top of the freight lines there, which are, you know, trying to produce a strong growth mode. And so that's a complication, not a disastrous one, but... Anyway, it was it was a very exciting conference. I was wrapped up in the middle of it. It took me a week to decompress and figure out what happened. And I think those are the highlights to, to share with you. Yeah, I mean, a lot going on there, um, for sure. Um, really enjoyed um, the, the article that John Kingston on Freightways wrote up after that um, yeah. exchange between uh, Marty Oberman and, and, and Union Pacific. Uh, you know, lots of, lots of good stuff there. Um, wanted to ask you about the... Um, you know, it, you always have this great quote, sort of the cult of the OR. Um, you know, wh- where do we stand now with the with the cult of the, the OR? So the cult of the OR is what Alan Shaw, the Norfolk Southern CEO, who we gave the Innovator Award. You know, he's had a very tough year with the East Palestine incident. But a year ago, about now, uh, he, in his investor conference, uh, produced their plans for growth. They started the no furlough pledge and really talked about trying to, you know, if it, if it costs more, it would be rewarded to continue to have sort of buffer stock, extra capacity to not be a JIT player, to exactly match the supply, your capacity with your anticipated volume, because when volume popped up, you would be short and therefore your consistency would go away and the the trust with shippers and that to rethink the model. And that is a direct attack on the cult of the operating ratio. Um, The cult of the operating ratio really developed out of the success of Hunter Harrison and the other PSR uh, out there in driving margins, you know, so much better and so quickly, but you reach a time when you sort of hit the ceiling there you know, with an OR in the in the 60 or slightly below range you, or a 40% plus margin, right? Um, at that point, you need to turn this engine into growth. Uh, the, the returns aren't justifiable. And in fact, you end up bumping up into angry shippers, angry regulators, angry legislators and whatnot. So mm-hmm. the railroads led at first by Norfolk Southern, but really across the board have tried to reposition themselves in the minds of investors away from an OR focus. In that November, December last year meeting that Norfolk Southern had, OR was mentioned once in 102 slides. In the two Canadian uh, companies' investor days in the spring, OR was not mentioned at all. It's a real repositioning. That's why I call that the great experiment. And we could you know, drive away from those. Uh, however, that'll never go away. As you know, Mike, the investor base runs from people who day trade to people who own for 10 years. Somewhere in the shorter end of that frame are people who are going to ask about operating ratio. I guarantee you that in the January you know, f- fourth quarter webcasts, that the first or second call will be about the operating ratio in the first quarter that will already be one month completed. That's the ultimate cult believers, if you will. They don't go away. They just need to be you know, pushed into the minority, if you will. And that's really what we've got to focus on. Yeah, I gotcha there. Um, is, is the no furlough movement, is it realistic? I mean, the rail volumes that go up and down with the economy, I mean, if, if we have a recession, the volumes are going to be down, then you need fewer people to move the lower volume number. Understood. You know, they all have asterisks. You know, if we hit a clear recession, 
and I'm not an economist. I, I don't think we will, but you know that's an uninformed you know opinion right there. Um, you know they they basically said, look, if you know if we need to, we will. And railroads do have you know tremendous ability to flex down. They're much more volume variable in their cost structure than they're usually given credit for. But the return in the past that really worked well because when you furloughed people, railroads tip, typically got you know, 75% of the employees back. In in the last wave during the, the, the pandemic, they were getting a third or less back. That meant they had to, you know, they were shortages of crews all across the network that, you know, if it was just in Atlanta, began to impact all the way to Los Angeles. The system really began to have, a, you know, terrible service. There were hearings on the Hill. You know, they weren't the only industry to be labor short with the results of the pandemic, but the warehouse industry and a lot of the shippers don't have a regulatory body that comes in and, uh, you know, holds mm -hmm. embarrassing hearings. They had that. They had to hire people and jump up the training costs and the hiring costs and all of that. They went through the labor contract round, which allowed them to reestablish a, a really healthy salary gap. But hiring and retaining workers became this highest priority and basically the unquantifiable loss of trust from the customers, they lost natural market share, by which I mean industries that are built around the railroads, like, for example, paper, where three quarters of that business is built around the boxcar and less than 50% was moving by boxcar by the end of 2022 because they could, the railroad just couldn't handle it. That The impact of that on the, on, on the return on invested capital is enormous. And what Alan Shaw is the first to publicly say it, Although, as I say, I think just about every railroad is undergoing the same process. The it's, it's much better to have higher costs in the short term through a cycle if you can generate a 15 to 17% ROIC than it is to try to exactly match the supply and demand. You do a pretty good job on the downside, and then when volumes come back, you're short. And, and unlike the past, you can't add that capacity back, especially labor capacity, that quickly because they don't come back, whether it's you know a new generation of workers, um, you know, there's a variety of reasons and theories out there, but the, the, the key difference is the old playbook doesn't work as well anymore. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, how this ultimately plays out when, when that happens, if the railroads are willing to accept a deteriorating operating ratio to keep people on staff in the, in the near term, it'll be, it'll be certainly fascinating. Um, you mentioned the regulatory body. I uh, wanted to ask you about your thoughts about the STB after Marty Oberman's uh, d departure. Do you think he can never truly be replaced or is he just a unique <laughs> person who has a skill to hold, you know, the railroad's feet to the fire? So, um, yeah, he is a special person in that regard. He's been thoroughly enjoyable, even if I don't agree with lots of what he says uh, out there. And um, so uh, he has another year, you know, up to potentially, and I'm going to meet with him next week. So we'll see. Uh, the, the key issue, well, first, going back to the, the, the issue of the, the no furloughed stuff, the issue is these roads are trying to look long term and through a cycle, and it is very hard for them to start off in the freight recession, you know, start off a long term plan underwater rather than in a normal economy. So you're right. That will be interesting. Going to the regulatory body. Uh, I used to argue, and I really think fundamentally, there isn't a partisan issue. Rail regulation is very different from, you know, permit regulation or environmental re regulation or, or labor. Uh, there isn't really a Democratic or Republican side in a rate dispute between the Union Pacific, let's say, and Dow Chemical. You know, where's the, uh, the liberal or conservative position there that doesn't exist? However, this election... 
of the presidential election coming up could have a role because the leading remaining Democrat is considered to be a traditional regulationist and a very pro-labor spokesperson. And so should that person get the job uh, as chairman, that could have an, an impact. Now, there are five votes, right? Um, you know, and, and so in other words, if the Democrats or Republicans win the White House, that could have a railroad impact on the SDB. Historically, I would have said that's a silly proposition because of what I said before. This time at May, will anybody be as eloquent? You know, m- much of what Marty has done has been the bully pulpit, right? It's coming to rail trends and other events and saying things that have caused this change. Uh, I actually really like the reciprocal switching changes he has imposed that are service-based because, frankly, everybody agrees with the need to improve first and last mile service. Whether his successor can be as dynamic, I mean, I'll just say it, rail trends in the past, if the uh, when it was the time for the STB to speak, was an excellent time to fill your coffee cup. With Marty Overman, you didn't ever want to miss a second of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, so, I mean, so dynamic. He just made those those, those hearings uh, a lot more. You know, my my perspective, your perspective is more entertaining, and, and Mayor Jobs just um, you know more more enjoyable. Um, well, he told so we us. Could, things, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Mike. I just said he actually would say what he was thinking rather than sort of uh, hide yeah. behind whether that was more correct. The legal things of saying, "Here's the case. I can't talk about it." He would say, I'm mad at railroads for using embargoes or whatever it was on his mind. So sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, he seemed to take the, the responsibility very seriously as as well. I mean, really trying to get to the bottom of a lot of these issues. And, you, you know, you have to, you know, whether you agree with all he said or not, you have to respect the effort to understand all these issues thoroughly and uh, do something about them uh, when, when there were when, when there were issues. Um you know, wanted to, to ask you, do you, do you think that, um, you know, the, the Rail Safety Act will have a big impact, um, you know, going forward? And then the reciprocal switching, it seems like you like it because of the service issue. Do you, do you think that'll have the intended effect or do you, you know, agree with what some of the railroads have said that it can cause network uh, disruptions um, ultimately? Well, I think that the the initial proposal on reciprocal switching that was going to be mileage-based was really a focus on rate on price power, and that could add complexity to the, to the story. So I think the original proposal that has not been adopted at, you know, uh, could potentially have been disruptive. I think probably not in, in the real world, very disruptive, but it was going down a trend where, you know, frankly, the more handling, you know, the more complicated things are. That's been the rail issue forever. That's the biggest issue in their complexity is interline service. So you would add more to it. I mean, in order to break up pricing power, this one, by focusing on service, I'm hopeful that it doesn't have a big impact, primarily because the railroads are all talking about service right now uh, in a big way. Now, I know that, you know, I can understand the skeptical side of the argument, but the railroads are aggressively talking about this. You know, I'm hoping that that the reciprocal switching uh, um, proposal and the railroads' efforts and capital dollars spent on it, uh, and efforts to get in, the, you know, to improve their service qualities, are all walk, working hand in hand. And so that do- doesn't actually get called upon because the railroads are also on the same side of that issue, if you will. Uh, they re- they also know they need to improve service if they're ever going to recover or gain share, and they all have pretty aggressive plans to do that, including the three companies that have had investor days. Um, what was the other side? The, oh, the, the Safety Act. 
Um, I think the real, we don't know yet. I mean, Congress has got a lot of other things to do and a lot of, a lot of time not doing them. Um, I think the Rail Safety Act had the potential to be very disruptive. I mean, using the Churchill phrase of never letting a good crisis go unused, uh, everybody with an agenda piled on. So you have issues of uh, people talking about crew size and people talking about train length that had nothing to do with the incident. Um, you know, the, the incident was on a, in a car owned not by Norfolk Southern in an area where they had voluntarily put it in hot box detectors. You know, if they really focus on making the, reducing the odds of such an incident happen, uh, I'm not worried at all. And I think the, the industry um, efforts and cooler heads prevailing have taken away some of the initial egregious, we've got to do something kind of aspect of the Railway Safety Act. So I'm, I'm not overly worried, but you know, we'll also, it probably extends into a new Congress. I don't know. Um, you know, it's it bears watching because things like legislating crew size would be a bad, very bad idea. It would not address the issues, but it would allow a lot of uh, people patting themselves on the back in front of TV cameras. And one of the, I was greatly shocked by the the Senate hearings on the on the East Palestine incident and how little people knew about railroads or cared about railroads. Um, or understood that the railroads were not allowed to carry these goods, but were compelled to, and they were compelled to by the common carrier obligations by the government, because while they do have accidents from time to time, they are much safer uh, than the alternative. Uh, and this idea has now gotten into the general um, you know, zeitgeist, uh, where my favorite comedian last night, John Oliver, took on the railroads on their safety without realizing that the alternatives are significantly worse and the railroads have every incentive to not derail, you know, forgetting their that humanity, but because of the expense uh, and, you know, that talk about breaking up the plan to be consistent is derailing. So um, I, I am concerned, but not panicked about that. Gotcha. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to, to watch it yet. I made the, the rounds on um, our Slack channel here internally. I just haven't had a chance to, 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 to watch it. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's pretty get amazing. To that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he has good uh, good writers for for sure. Glad those guys are. are no, I, I love him. But this is it's it's out of date and wrong in so many ways. But anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah, you know, comedy show. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the rails and intermodal companies are you know talking a good game about service, like you said. I think they're talking about good game about volume too, because with a lot of these partnerships, it seems like to me they're saying a lot of the right things. Are, are you are you convinced that intermodal is going to be a growth area the next few years, or do you think it's a possibility that could growth could, could stagnate like it has? So, you know, the, the, they are talking a good game, and frankly, you have to talk it first before you walk it because you need to convince the shareholders, for example, that this is the right plan and that you could spend that capital. Um, uh, you know, Marty Oberman at Rail Trends and even some of the CEOs, Joe Henricks at CSX, said, isn't this what we heard last year? And the answer is, yeah, it is. I mean, it's a lot more concrete alliances and proposals and and you know n- new products out there over the course of the year but i do really believe it i think one of the best ways to look at it is the quantum um partnership jb hunt and bnsf are have locked in a partnership and a better relationship than they've ever had and probably the closest in my side of the transportation world and and they see a market in their territory for 7 to 11 million loads that, that they could potentially go after keep in mind that the domestic intermodal mar- market which has turned up in the container side, the domestic intermodal is doing okay. Easy comparisons, but right now they're running eight, eight and a half million loads. I mean, there's 
huge amounts out there. If you look at just one of these, another side of the market from the, the West, if you look at the cross-border with Mexico, it's been a great story, cross-border border intermodal. It's been a great story for a decade uh, for KCS and now will be for CPKC, but they're losing share. So even as they're growing double digit, even more trucks are crossing the border. They're about to get a second bridge in Laredo. They're about to really pump up a lot of business through Eagle Pass. There is a lot of opportunity. Uh, if intermodal and particularly North American domestic intermodal doesn't lead the railroad industry back into the a growth mode, then the whole great experiment fails. That has to be the lead dog of the sled. You know, there is great opportunity for battery materials, you know, for, for carload freight, recovery of normal freight, of, of sticky, other kinds of freight, transload. There, there's opportunities everywhere because the railroads have been, you know, got so good for a while and then stagnated and then went actually down in their service levels. As they recover, there's opportunities. But if domestic intermodal isn't the growth leader, my whole thesis is is, is God and all the efforts of the railroads will come to naught. I don't believe that's going to be the case. I understand the, the the reason to be skeptical, the need to be skeptical about it. And it's we're in a show me condition and, and show me through a cycle means, you know, next quarter may not be the one that makes everybody say, Eureka, you know, they, they've done it. Yeah, I mean, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, if, you know how that goes. Uh, you know, this year, I mean, from sort of at least the sort of media perspective, it was kind of the year of the rail safety or, um, you know, with rail safety issues sort of bubbled to the top. You know, sort of last year it was labor issues. I would say the year before that it was service issues. If you had to uh -huh. guess what 2024, the big theme of railroad 2024 would be, what would it be and who would be potential candidates to be railroader of the year in such an environment? <laughs> you know, it's going to be, um, it has to be a recovery in service level, which is, you know, we've already seen, you know, signs that direction, but that has to continue. And service is like the dog chasing the car. You don't act, you know, as you get closer, the car accelerates, right? So service levels are going to get you know, tougher every year. The railroads fell behind after having 10 years when I called it the rail renaissance of, of you know, improvement. Um, so they went through PSR. They did other things that initially was brought on, not just because of the margin potential, but because, you know, a scheduled railroad runs a more consistent service. They need to focus on that. I think this will be a year of proving that out. Uh, and then by the middle of the year, hopefully will be a year in which we are seeing signs of, of growth. And so, um, you know, I'm optimistic that this will be a good year. Yeah, they've had three big body blows, and you just alluded to them, you know, that were very public, where railroads went from the front page from the back of your business page to the front page, uh, they were viewed as, you know, inept because of the service issues, the crew shortages. They were viewed as greedy in the labor round, which was a regularly scheduled round, but it's still interpreted it as workers wanting to walk off because of PSR. It was all about the money. It's always about the money. And they got a lot of money, um, as did the UPS stock workers, big three, et cetera. Um, and then there was, you know, so they're greedy, inept, and then dangerous. They're really none of those things. Um, what we're going to try to debate this coming year will be, you know, uh, I don't know if there is a word of apt. I mean, how, if they're not inept, can they actually be positive and solid and, and progressive and entrepreneurial? Uh, and I think that'll be the year that we begin to see these signs. That's my hope. And it is my belief as well. And I think we're going to see, we're already seeing it at CSX. They have, um, mm -hmm. you know, an outsider from Ford leading the, the, the company, uh, but they have a great Mr. Inside as their chief operating officer, uh, Mike Corey, 
who was part of the great CN diaspora, you know, one of the great, you know, who learned under the, the knee of Hunter Harrison, as did Keith Creel, as did Jim Venna. Um, so I, I would say maybe CSX. I mean, I think Norfolk Southern needs to improve their service, you know, and, and, and will continue to justify getting the award, which really came about because of the great experiment and the operating ratio refocus, you know, and all that. But I would say CSX might be uh, the champion. Union Pacific is making great strides in their service uh, recovery. Um, BNSF and, and Jamie Hunt will be will be terrific. Uh, CPKC, I mean, it's hard, hard to say CPKC is going to be, you know, we'll have, we'll have a full year to spell to this new company, this new market. And so that'll be exciting, too. I think there's going to be a lot to talk about, but hopefully we'll, we'll be debating this in freight waves and we'll be debating this in the, you know, in the business pages and we will stay out of John Oliver's eyesight. <laughs> yeah, so, sounds great. Um, yeah, we'll definitely look forward to that as well. Um, you know, again, for anyone who has not um, read it uh, and wants to hear more from, from Tony Hatch, go to progressiverailroading.com. He has a, an article up at the top, um, you know, quite a good one uh, going through we learned from Railway Age, you can go to freightwaves.com and, and, and read the, the summaries that John Kingston wrote, who attends. He lives in New York, so easy for him to, to attend. Uh, Tony, how can folks uh, reach out to, to you um, directly? So, um, you know, anthonybhatchconsulting.com is my website, which is not the most sophisticated because those who know me know that my technological skills are not sophisticated at all. Um, also, at abh 18 abh18 at mindspring.com is my email you could you know talk about uh signing up to my weekly reports and whatever but uh be ha happy to talk to anybody you know this is what i do 24 7 when i'm not watching the doctor sounds great yeah awesome yeah it's, it's so cool to um speak with someone who has such a passion uh in the industry so uh, great to see you and hope everyone has a good day <laughs>